Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 26. For I know that by your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope, and I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. Good, good to see all of you this morning. Um, many of you know I like to play tennis. Uh, I'm an okay player, uh, not great. I like to uh, get better, but uh, nowadays I just have enough trouble finding time to actually go out and play, let alone practice to get better. And you know, when I watch the pros play, I'm just amazed at how effortless, effortlessly they seem to be able to make uh, some of their shots. Um, if you don't play tennis, you just have to trust me on this, but the way like Raphael Nadal can hit a forehand and can put so much topspin on it is, is pretty incredible. And the way like Roger Federer can um, place a serve in the service box and Djokovic can move and um, get to balls, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, and I could watch him and just dream about having the ability to play like them someday, but I know I'll, I'll never get there because they're, they're just too good. Um, but I do have friends that are also pretty good players, not like the pros, you know, but they're better than me. And, and I get to play with them sometimes. And um, I have a friend in Houston who, um, when I play with him, I just marvel at his second serve because he's able to create a lot of spin and, and, and get it in, and he almost never double faults. And, and as I watch him, I think, yeah, you know, if, if I played enough, if I practiced enough, I could have a serve like him. Uh, I have a friend here that I sometimes play with. He, he always likes to slice the ball, and he has this great, you know, slice shot. And, and I never slice the ball. And I think, you know, if I practiced enough and played, I could probably slice the ball as good as he does. Um, you know, I, I watch these guys, and I'm like, well, you know, they're good, but they're not so good like the pros that I can't be like them. So instead of setting my sights on the pros, which I think, once again, is unattainable, you know, I set my sights much lower and just try to emulate uh, some of my friends who are better than me. And I think sometimes this is how we view our spiritual life. You know, for people who look at the Apostle Paul, People who knew him, you know, back when he was still on earth in ministry. You know, people, I, I bet his friends would just say, you know, that Paul, you know, he's crazy. You know, I mean, when you think about it, his enemies, his rivals, they didn't know what to do with them. You know, we're going to throw you in jail, Paul. Paul's like, great, you know, I'm just going to have another worship and praise night there that I did last time in Philippi when I was in jail. 
They're like, well, you know, if you do that, we're going to beat you and have you flogged. And he's like, that's fine. I would count it worthy to suffer for my law, for my Lord. And they're like, well, if you do that, we're going to kill you. And they're like, well, please, please kill me. You would be doing me a favor. You know, to most observers, you know, they would look at him and think, this guy's insane. His dedication and devotion to Christ was unrivaled. You know, we read about the Apostle Paul in Scripture and, and we're like, I could never be like him. The bar is just too high. You know, maybe I could grow enough to, to get, get mature in my Christian life so that I could become a deacon or elder in this church. No disrespect to our deacon and elders, but, you know, maybe you think, oh yeah, I could get that mature, but I could never get to Paul's level. I mean, that guy was just crazy. He's insane. You know, yet for Paul, he saw his relationship with Christ as not only attainable, but expected. In a couple of places in scripture, he tells his readers to imitate me. In the second letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And we read verses like that and we're like, um, that's okay, Paul, you know, thanks, but, but no thanks. I don't really want to do that. But you know, even though Paul experienced much hardship and suffering in his life, one thing he had continuously was joy. And that's what we started learning a couple weeks ago when we you know, started going through the book of Philippians with Dr. Arthurs. Dr. Arthurs talked about how joy was you know, the big theme in this book and mentioned how frequently the word joy appeared in Philippians. And when we talk about joy, we don't just mean like this fleeting happiness that comes and goes depending on our circumstances. You know, when things are going my way, you know, everything's great and I'm very elated. But when things start going in the opposite direction, we get dejected and become bitter. That's not true joy. The joy that's being talked about is the contentment and fulfillment Paul had through his relationship with Christ. It didn't depend on his circumstances. There's an interesting phrase that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 6.10. It says this, he says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Like, how can you be that? You know, though we may not wish to emulate Paul's life and go through all the hardships and suffering he went through, I think we would all like to learn how to rejoice even in sorrow. Dr. Arthur's over the last two Sundays taught us how we could have joy like Paul even in chains. And in our passage for today, I want to show us how Paul remains joyful in his confidence. And there are several things in our text this morning that tells us what Paul places his confidence in. And so let's look at those this morning. First, Paul could remain joyful in spite of his circumstances, because he was confident in his persevering. Confident in his persevering. Look at verse 19 again. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. If you, if you were here the last couple of weeks, if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, you remember how Dr. Arthur shared that 
when Paul was writing the book of Philippians, he was actually under house arrest. He was chained to at least one Roman guard, if not more. He was awaiting trial, and depending on the outcome of the trial, he could, have, he could be executed. So when you see the word deliverance in verse 19, you may think, well, what Paul is referring to is that he's confident that at the trial he's going to be acquitted, he's going to be released from prison. But this is not the deliverance he's referring to. The Greek word that Paul uses, translated in our Bibles as deliverance, is actually the word used elsewhere to mean salvation. So it's not his being delivered from arrest that he's talking about, but the salvation he will receive in the end when he comes face to face with Jesus. The interesting thing, though, is why is Paul able to have this confidence? If you look at this verse more closely, once again, you'll see it's based on two things. Paul starts off, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I will be delivered. So Paul's confidence was based on one, what, the Philippians' prayers, and then second, the Holy Spirit. Paul believes that God will use the Philippians' prayers to help him persevere, and that the Holy Spirit will give him the resources needed so that he could remain faithful and be true in his relationship with Christ. And in our English translations, it's not that clear. But the way it's written in the original language, it's much more closely connects the word prayers, or the Philippians' prayers, with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying is that through the prayers of the Philippians, I know God will furnish to me the Holy Spirit, which will supply what I need to maintain my strength and faith in God. And that's interesting. I mean, this actually may sound a bit strange to us, right? Because we're often taught that once we accept Christ into our lives, you know, we're good to go. Um, you know, we're saved, nothing else needs to be done. And that is true, partially, but there's more to it. You know, we forget sometimes that God often ordains the prayers of his people as a means to accomplish his purposes. For those familiar with Paul's letters, you may recall that Paul often prays for the recipients of his letters, that they might grow in maturity, that they may grow in full knowledge of Christ, that they may persevere. Even in our letter, if you look back to verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul prays that the Philippians would be made pure and blameless until the day of Christ. To me, it's really interesting because, you know, when we get together in the groups to pray, like, you know, like we just did, um, you know, we'll pray for, well, actually, when we get into smaller groups, you know, we'll pray for things like one another's health, you know, I'm not feeling well, well today, you know, we'll pray for our school or work situations, you know, help me with all the, the, the work I have to do, we'll pray for, you know, family situations, if there's trouble going on with our families. But this verse challenges us to show us that our prayers need to go much deeper beyond just praying for one another's immediate needs to pray 
for one's eternal salvation and perseverance. You know, when's the last time in your groups you got together and you prayed a prayer like, you know, God, please help Jack, that you would give him your spirit, that he could persevere so that he would remain pure and blameless until he sees you face to face and that he may receive salvation on that day. When is the last time you prayed a prayer like that? Hardly ever for me, right? I pray for non-Christian salvation, but do we pray for believers' perseverance and salvation? That's what Paul would challenge us in verse 19. Paul could remain confident and persevering because of the Philippians' prayers through which he received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would give him the resources he would need through their prayers in order to persevere. The second reason why Paul was able to remain joyful was because he was confident in his purpose. He was confident in his purpose. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So in this last part, we see that Paul's purpose in life or death is Christ being exalted, or as I put in your outline, that Jesus is glorified. Jesus is glorified. As we read this verse, it once again confirms to me that Paul wasn't really sure the outcome, what the outcome of his trial would be, right? Which is why he says, whether by life or death. He testifies that he will have sufficient, you know, he writes that he will, feels he will have sufficient courage, but he, he doesn't know the outcome. But even if he is executed, he says here, it doesn't matter because Christ will be exalted. Even if he dies, it doesn't rob him of his joy because his aim is to see Jesus glorified. And when, you, when your greatest desire is to see Jesus glorified, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter if it's life or death for Paul. For Paul, knowing Jesus was glorified is enough. And you know, when we get to verse 21, we get to probably what's maybe the most quoted verse of Philippians. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, it refers back to verse 20, you know, whether by life or by death. Many of us are familiar with this verse. You know, maybe we consider it one of our favorite verses. Maybe you, we, some of you have it posted up on your wall at, at home or in your room or, you know, somewhere in the refrigerator. Maybe you claim this as your motto in life. But what does it really mean? If this is your life first, what does it mean to say you live for Christ? And do you really see dying as gain? To fully understand the verse in its context, we need to understand why Paul, or how Paul, clarifies things in the following verses and recognizes that in his explanation, he shows that not only does he have confidence in his purpose, but he has confidence in his priorities, which is the last point that Paul is making from this text. 
verse 22 to 26. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. From these verses, we can see that Paul's priority was Christ and the church, Christ and his church. First, Christ. For those of us, once again, who like to quote verse 21, I believe our thinking in saying this is that, you know, living is a good thing, but if I die, well, that's okay too. But when we read the following verses, did you notice that from what Paul wrote, we actually have the opposite perspective that Paul had? Meaning that the choice to live for Paul was actually the more difficult choice you remember a couple of weeks ago um, in the news uh, when uh, you know, there was a libertarian presidential candidate, Gary Johnson, was being interviewed by MSNBC, and the interviewer you know, wanted to know how Gary Johnson would handle the crisis in Syria. And um, so he asked uh, Johnson, you know, what would you do with Aleppo? And Gary Johnson looked at him puzzled, like, um, can you repeat that? He's like, what would you do with Aleppo? And even after he repeats it, Johnson still is confused and he's like, what is Aleppo? And the interviewer looks at him and kind of stares at him in disbelief and he's like, you're kidding, right? Like, you don't know what Aleppo is? And yeah, he was, and he had to explain what it was and he was just, just totally shocked. And I mean, if you watch the news, it was all over the news for those days because when it, the, the news reporter was was just disbelief and, and people couldn't believe that a presidential candidate wouldn't know what Aleppo was. You know, I think if Paul was interviewing us, he might ask us, and not in a morbid, morbid way, he would ask, you know, so, so your preference is, is to die right now, right? You really want to die, right? And if you look a little puzzled and respond, well, um, not really, Paul would look back at us disbelief and say, you're kidding, right? Wait, wait a sec, you're a Christian, right? And you say that Jesus is the most important thing to you and that you love Jesus more than anything else. Wouldn't you want to be with the one you love the most? You're kidding, right? I mean, once again, I'm not trying to sound morbid here. But understand, for Paul, this was a no-brainer. Paul knew, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, that to be away from the body was to be at home with the Lord. So with Christ as his highest priority and greatest love, his desire was to be with Jesus. Christ was his number one priority, but his second priority was the church. Helping the church, helping Christ's church by adding members to the body, helping Christ's church by helping the members grow in their relationship with Jesus. 
So he's torn, as it says in verse 23. I don't know what I would want to do. He does say being with Christ is far better. Actually, what he writes in verse 23 is not just it's far better. Literally, what he writes is it's very far better. It is very far better for me to die and be with Christ. But he adds, it's more necessary for you that I remain. Because Paul saw that the Philippians still had a lot of room to grow. They needed to learn how to keep Christ as their highest priority. They needed to learn how to have joy and faith like Paul had. So Paul was happy to stick around to work with them. And Paul wasn't coming from an egotistical standpoint. He wasn't like, you know, you need me here because I'm great. I know more than you. You know, I'm smarter than you. I'm rich. You know, whatever. You know, he's coming from a very humble servant standpoint because he loves Christ's church almost as much as he loves Christ, which is why he's torn. He prefers to be with Christ. But he loves the church so much that he wants to stick around to help it grow. And if it helps the body of Christ grow in their joy in Christ, then Paul is joyful as well. So in context, this is what Paul means when he says, to live is Christ. It doesn't mean that Christ lives in him, though he does. It doesn't mean that Paul submits to Christ, which of course he does. What it means to live as Christ for Paul is that Christ is his life. He loves Christ. He hopes in Christ. He preaches Christ. He follows Christ. He fellowships with Christ. Everything he does is centered around Christ. It's all about Christ. Paul would say, if I die and I can be with Christ, I consider it great joy to finally be with him. But if I go on living... I'm going to continue to serve Christ and help people grow in love for Christ. And that also makes me rejoice. My circumstances don't matter. If I go through hardships, it doesn't matter. If I suffer, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is Christ and Christ being glorified. So that's what Paul means when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was solely focused on Christ, and that's all that matters. So for those of you who like to quote verse 21, say that this is your model, life verse, can you say this the way Paul says it? That to live is Christ, and to die is gain? Paul teaches us that what he says should be true for every follower of Jesus Christ. He says, imitate me. This is the standard. The bar is not that high. I like this exercise that um, John MacArthur had his congregation do when he was preaching on this passage. He asked people to take the word Christ out of verse 21 and fill in the blank with whatever you think would be most appropriate for you. So instead of to live as Christ, to live is blank. How would you fill in that blank? I mean, I mean, if you were honest, what would you say? No matter what you put there, do you see that 
with any answer, dying would be loss. Like if you said, to live is my family, then dying is loss. To live is my career, then dying is loss. Even if you said something like, Christ and blank, like to live is Christ in my relationships, to live is Christ in my friends, to live is Christ in food or video games or entertainment, whatever. Whatever else you put there, it's still not totally gain. It's gain and loss. If you put something like, to live is Christ in entertainment, then dying is gain and loss. Only in Christ can you truly see that dying would be gain. That's where Paul is. That's where he wants us to be. That's where we need to be to have this kind of joy that Paul has. About 30 years ago, in 1984, there's a believer in Iran. His name was Mehdi Dibaj. He was arrested and thrown in jail uh, without a trial. He was, the crime he was charged with was committing apostasy. And what that meant was he was, he was charged with a crime because he converted from Islam to Christianity. It was punishable by death. He spent a total of 10 years in jail. They said two of those years were spent in solitary confinement. It was said at times that he was also tortured in prison. He was so long in jail, in part because it took that long for his case to come to trial. And when it did, Mehdi wrote a statement of defense reaffirming his commitment to Christ. The last few lines of this defense that this, I hope you can read it. What happened? Can we go back to the... uh, Yeah, thank you. Mehdi Dibaj wrote this. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. On December 12, 1993, the court, after reading a statement of defense, sentenced Mehdi to execution. But under intense international pressure, the government arranged for his release in January 1994. Seven months after his release, however, he was found dead under suspicious circumstances in Tehran Park, the third Christian murdered in Iran after their release from prison. Stab wounds in his body indicated how he died. Mehdi Dibaj was a man like Paul who knew what it truly meant to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the question for us is, do we have the same confidence like Mehdi Dibaj 
and the Apostle Paul. Joy is being linked to being confident in our perseverance. Joy is linked to living with the right purpose and the right priorities. This is what Paul would teach us. This is what Paul would have us imitate. This is what Paul would tell us is the way to experience the radical joy that he had in Christ. Imitate me, Paul would say. The bar is not too high. This is attainable through the Holy Spirit, through God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the examples of guys like Paul and Mehdi Dibaj who, you know, we look at these guys' lives and we're like, these guys are crazy, Lord. And we wonder whether we could ever be that crazy for you. Lord, help us to see how, you know, this joy that we talk about is linked to our relationship with you and to whether we do live for Christ and see dying as gain. Father, continue to teach us and speak to us through your spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.